Hi folks and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Today I'm joined by Stephen Shed Shedlatsky. Shed, as he's known to his friends, and luckily that's I've got to know him and uh, he's allowed me to say Shed and call him Shed today. And you'll find from Shed that he's got a background experience which is fascinating. He's worked with Simon Sinek. He's done his practice leadership. He's writing a book around psychological safety, which within the context of a speak-up culture and how you create it as a leader. And it's fascinating roam round that we take today on this conversation around how you do that, some of the backgrounds, some of the theories, and work on attributes, David Marquette's work as well. So some great stories, some great rationales on how you do that. And and it's interesting because we, we went down a pathway of thinking that we would talk about how writing the book and how all the lessons that both of us have learned in there, but we went off into the topic. So have to get them back to have another conversation. So just take this as a taster into the, the great mind that is shed and his work and then we'll welcome him back to start thinking about how he wrote the book and some of those lessons learned so enjoy shed i'm interested do these places north of toronto what sort of places are they? Because I, I haven't been. I've only been to Toronto. I've never been further north. So what are they like? So it's somewhat interesting diversity because you have the Niagara Escarpment. So there's a lot of rock. Mm. There's a lot of muck. Mm-hmm. But in a few special places, there's like very soft sandy beach. Mm, okay. I'm pretty sure there's three soft sandy beaches in the entire province of Ontario. And they're mobbed. <laughs> I could be getting some of this wrong, but most of it is around Lake Huron, so Georgian Bay. Okay. Yeah. Names that are remembered from the past and stories and history and Huron and everything else. So, yeah. I had a fascinating guest on recently who was from Native American Indian tribe and was talking about the different tribes and different cultures there. And that is fascinating to go into. Yes, and I I admittedly don't know as much as I definitely could, but it is absolutely fascinating. From a historical perspective, I mean, this part of the world in North America is just so much, Mm. this is our home now. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, uh... Uh, No. (laughs) Yeah. Is that how this is going to work? Yes, our guns are bigger and you don't have any. Okay. And then we'd be talking about the British and everybody else. And Okay, so... Yes, let's just sip our tea and carry on, shall we? Yeah. Exactly, with our (laughs) pinky out and do that. Yes. Yeah. Mm, Lovely. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, why don't you give an intro to the listeners? Who are you? Yeah. Who are you? Sure. Hello, all out there who are listening. My name is Stephen Shedletsky. Friends call me Shed. So feel free to, even if we've yet to to meet. Colin and I, of course, have met. And so he's very much allowed to call me Shed, which I love. I care deeply about good, healthy, humble, confident leadership. Uh, I've devoted my entire life to helping leaders build more trust with their people and see that trust is really a lubrication to make things go faster, better, quicker. And so I'm deeply passionate about a body of work that many are familiar with called psychological safety, uh, very much helped Mm -hmm. to be put on the map by uh, Professor Amy Edmondson out of Harvard. And I'm in the process of writing a book right now, almost, almost done with the first draft of the manuscript, which feels pretty awesome, daunting, scary, wonderful, all, all the things. The working title for the, for the book is Speak Up Culture, When Leaders Truly Listen 
people step up. Nice. Which is so topical at the moment. I mean, yeah. Thank you. And I, I kind of feel like it won't go out of fashion. I think we'll still be having a conversation about the value of speaking up and truly listening, even, mm-hmm. even as AI and the robots and the metaverse takes over, if it does. It was interesting because we were joking about talking about British and colonialism and everything before we came on. But there's a, there's a piece that I was interviewing somebody on the podcast or talking to somebody on the podcast the other day who's written a book called Citizens. And his three stories, he's got John Alexander, brilliant guy, brilliant book, well worth a read. His first one is the story of the subject, the subject of the king, the queen in the background, and, and then the story of the consumer and how we've been individualized over the last 60-ish years in his views into doing that. And then he's got this story of the citizen. So how do we get more collaborative? How do we get more as a community-focused and his whole concept is that we're at the critical time to, to do that. So, And a strong part of that is speak-up culture. So it's fascinating that it's all coming. And I don't think it'll ever go out of fashion. So let's talk about that book process, because I, I think there's a lot of people, you know, I was one of them sat next to Michael Bungie-Stanio so long ago, and he's just finished his coaching habit, hadn't published it yet. And he was saying, we were talking about books and the reason for writing a book. And let's dig into that process for a while. Why the book? Yeah. What brought you to it? Yeah. So, yeah. And for anyone who's familiar with Michael Bungay Sr.'s work, I won't ever pretend to be able to write in the brilliant fashion that he does. I mean, the way he writes, it's so accessible. It's so practical. It's funny. It is. It's mind blowing. I'm not going to write a book like that. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start on this level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) In the end. I will also, should all things go to plan, which they are right now, have a book. Like, it will be, I will have an apple, but Michael's will be a delicious, you know, pink lady, and mine will be a good old Granny Smith. And, it, you know, while we're both apples, I think, you know, the book that I intend to write, and that I am writing right now, I'm purposefully taking a body of work that already exists in psychological safety, Mm -hmm. and I'm making it, I'm attempting to make it far more easy to understand and far more easy to do something with. My perspective, you know, good old Zig Ziglar quote of people don't buy drills, they buy holes. Mm -hmm. I think psychological safety is the drill to get us a speak-up culture as a whole. Interesting. And so for me, I mean, first and foremost, the way I define a speak-up culture is creating an environment in which people feel that it is worth the risk to their reputation, their relationships, to their job, to share ideas, even if half-baked, to share concerns, even if they're unpopular, Mm -hmm. to disagree, even with senior leaders, and to admit mistake. Mm -hmm. And when you have those conditions, there's more trust, there's more cooperation, there's more innovation. If you don't have those conditions, you have are more likely to have a culture of fear and a culture of silence. Mm. And a culture of silence, even if it's a bunch of nodding heads on, on Zoom with everyone on mute, that doesn't mean consensus. That might mean fear. Yeah. And so, I mean, for me, the impetus, and it's funny, uh, Colin, because when Michael Bungay Sr. came out with his latest book, How to Begin, brilliant, mm. I brought him on to do a LinkedIn Live, and he did some live coaching with me on his process of how to identify a, what does he call it? Is it a worthy goal, I think he calls it? Important, meaning it is more important than yourself. Daunting, we grow where the work is hard. And thrilling, you know, it brings you joy, it brings you fulfillment, it is still aligned with your strengths, you know? 
just as if I were to attempt to write a book like Michael's books or write a book like Moby Dick, that wouldn't be thrilling for me. Yeah. I need to write a book that has story and is engaging and is funny, you know? The reason to write the book is I came across this body of work that I knew of mm -hmm. that I think previously is a little bit too academic and a little bit too sterile, and I really want to yeah. make it accessible and I really want more and more leaders to understand the responsibility of what it truly means to lead people. And there's a beautiful catharsis and a beautiful, honest look at one's own beliefs when you go through the process of putting it down on paper and going, do I really believe that? Is that the truth? Is that yep. what the case studies show? Where's the research? Do I have an anecdote? you know, selfish or not, I want to write a book that when I read it, it moves me to tears because that to me is success, that I've taken something that I so deeply, passionately believe in and care about, and I feel as though I have transmissed it or communicated it yeah. in such a way that others might be able to get it, use it, do something with it, feel something uh, as well. And, and I'm writing specifically to leaders, whether by title or by choice. People who are in these positions where their actions and behaviors impact the well-being of other people, again, by title or by behavior. Mm, I like that impact by well-being. Mm -hmm. You know, you could get into a whole conversation about what is leadership, which I which I do in the book. <laughs> yeah, I have it. I have a chapter called "Leadership Defined." Yeah. So, and, and let's dig in because I was interviewing a fellow Torontonian, if that's the expression, Torontonian. Yes. Yeah, Torontonian, and she's writing her book on trauma informed leadership. So that's her new book. Oh, who who is it? It's Carolyn Swara. Don't know if you've you've heard of her. No. But really powerful piece because of small and large trauma in her life and how it impacts. So there's a speak up in the innovation side. There's a speak up in the get things done. There's a speak up in the risk mitigation, all of those things. But where she's coming from is the speak up in terms of mm -hmm. getting people to speak up and talk about why they are late, why they are acting in a particular way which could be related to small or big trauma in her, her life. So I'm interested in your definition of leadership because impact by well-being is a direct link to that. So do you want to dig into that? Yeah, well, so a couple of things come up. One is this notion of there is such a thing as post-traumatic growth, mm. that so long as we rest, reflect, recover, get the help we need, whether by sleep or therapy or whatever, coaching, uh, we can actually grow from trauma. One of the areas where our purpose lives is helping others move through trauma that we've moved through in the past. Mm. Hard work, but it's very worthwhile, gratifying, fulfilling work. Yeah. And that's from your work with Simon, isn't it? So Simon Sinek and working on there as well. Is that part of that? Yeah. So one of the things that Simon's taught me and really highlighted for me is when we help individuals and organizations discover and articulate purpose, there's two places that we look. So one, our purpose is an origin story. It's who we are and who we are is where we come from. And so to find our purpose, we go to meaningful stories from our past, our origin story. Mm -hmm. You know, meaningful doesn't mean positive or negative. It means meaningful. It can be resonant or dissonant. Mm -hmm. And so there's a process that Simon coined called peaks and valleys, where you sort of 
take a blank sheet of paper, draw a line down the middle, like a equator of emotional neutrality and bullet points above the line are positive, fulfilling, joyful in nature. And bullet points below the line are valleys. They could be traumatic or they could be tragic or hard. They're experiences in your life that you would never want to relive or revisit. But if you're really honest, they've helped you become who you are today. You know, like I never want to revisit being at my grandmother's funeral. It was the first Mm -hmm. sort of significant person and family member in my life I ever lost. Mm -hmm. But I had a glimpse of empathy for my mother of what it must have been like for her to lose her dad at the age of 15. I always knew that rationally. But as soon as I just experienced a little bit of of loss, I had a moment where I hugged her and I just Mm -hmm. like, I had a little bit of emotional empathy and I wouldn't trade it, you know? I'll remember that for the rest of my life. And so that's an example of a trauma. It might be different than the way Carolyn's using it, but a a trauma, a seemingly sort of negative or antagonistic event in the story of my life that's actually given me more meaning and given me more more identity. And I like the link into the well-being because, you know, when we talk about changing habits and I was on with Mark Green who challenged me about habits and said, you know, there's a lot of mental habits which we don't change because we don't know they're there. So there's the physical habits, the mental habits. But um, the work on habit to change things is one of the ways of changing habits is by doing it for others. Yeah. And having somebody else in in, in mind to do that. So I presume that leadership to the well-being is one of the things is to to develop your leadership to do that, but I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, so you speak a bit of step 12 in the 12-step in the program, which is the commitment to take what you learn and know and give it to another. It's service. Yeah. And leadership is, is service. So mm. I love that you're making the link column between leadership and well-being because we mm. know out of the U.S. from the National Institute of Health that our relationship with our direct boss has more of an impact on our health than our relationship mm-hmm. with our family doctor. Is that interesting? And I've got a couple of those in my family, and I'm very comfortable with that Mm -hmm. statement. We've all felt this, that when we have a great boss, Mm -hmm. they actually make us more mentally and physically healthy. Mm. When we have a negative or toxic relationship or an insecure relationship with our boss, it negatively Mm -hmm. impacts our our health Mm -hmm. and well-being physically and mentally. Mm. You know, I saw this firsthand my first day at my first corporate job out of college, a large national company. And I was actually multinational, but mostly based in, in Canada. And a thousand people were let go first day on the job post-merger. Wow. And so I was walking in as many more people were walking out. And I could sense and see the, the trepidation in the person whose cubicle was across from me was a 37-year veteran of the company. Her name was Brenda. And I remember, like, I could sense and see her trepidation waiting for her pink slip to arrive next. And not only did it impact her productivity, it it impacted her physical and mental well-being. Mm -hmm. And so I think a a definition of leadership, so I'll I'll take from my colleague Rich Devaney, I'll take from my colleague Simon Sinek. Mm -hmm. So Rich, who's a retired U.S. Navy SEAL of 21 years, he has a great quote, which is, Um, Leaders aren't born. Leaders aren't made. Leaders are chosen based upon the way that they behave. Interesting. And if if you behave in a way in which others call you a leader, if you behave in a way in which others choose to follow you, Mm -hmm. you are a leader. The only requisite of leadership is followership. You don't need title. 
if people follow you. And the reason people follow you is not for you. It's for themselves. It's how you make them feel. You make them feel more inspired about the future. They make you feel as if they have your best interest at heart and in mind. Yeah. And so leadership is about authenticity and vulnerability and empathy and compassion and decisiveness and taking accountability and responsibility for when things don't go well and giving credit when things do go well. And I'll take from Simon Sinek as well. Simon wrote a brilliant book on leadership called Leaders Eat Last. And Simon says, you know, leaders aren't the ones who are in charge. That's a driver. Leaders are the ones who take care of those in their span of care. Leaders are the ones who take care of those in their charge. Yeah, I love that. When we felt taken care of and we believe in someone and their intent and where they're going, we'll, we'll run through walls for them. Yep. Sometimes literally. <laughs> and it's this blood and sweat and tears, as he says, you know, blood, sweat and tears. And and that's, you know, his, his TED talk. And it's interesting because it, it feeds into something that I've been wrestling with and working with, which is build it and they will come. So, so many people are thinking about finite behaviors, another one of his language pieces there, which rather than infinite. So if, if my systems are strong as a leader, and therefore people feel that they're being taken care of in strong systems that engage, inspire, give fresh ideas, then they feel like there's a place for them, a home for them, and they can grow. Now, they might not be, the leader might not be their favorite person, might not want to go out for drinks and dinner, but they feel like they, they have a place. Yeah, I've found, Colin, that there are three gears to change culture, and you need all three of them. So there's, there's mindset, there's actions, and there's system. And I'll bucket in system also in environment, you know, or culture. I'll take from the infinite wisdom that is the Broadway production of Kinky Boots. There's <laughs> a quote from a, from a song, a song which says when you, what is it? You can change your world when you change your mind. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. I have a close friend who's out of the UK, Peter Docker. Uh He defines transformation as nothing has changed, yet everything is different. So when he and his wife, Claire, went to the hospital for their firstborn, Peter left the hospital first to go back to their home to set things up. Mm -hmm. And he said when he came home, the physical home was exactly the same, but the context had completely shifted. This was now the home that we were, they were, he was bringing his firstborn mm-hmm. child mm-hmm. back to. And the, the definition, the meaning, the warmth of the home yeah. just shifted. And so I'm, I'm very weary when, you know, CEOs of these big Fortune 500 companies say, we're putting our people in purpose first. And I'm like, what's changed yeah. other than the wind? <laughs> you know, what, what, what was the experience that you had that actually transformed and made you behave differently or Mm. think differently because oftentimes Mm. it's just words the other fun bit and now we can go into david marquet's work on turn turn the ship around because he did this beautifully that we can act our way to new thinking Mm. yeah so marquet had a very real problem he took command of the ship called the USS Santa Fe that he wasn't prepared to lead because he only had two weeks to prepare. Mm. His orders changed. He spent 50 weeks studying for the USS Olympia, 
two weeks before he was to take command, they said, oh, n never mind. You're not studying for an algebra test. You're studying for a physics test. <laughs> well, what? Right? His, his orders completely shifted. And he inherited the worst performing, worst rated mm -hmm. crew and ship in the entire fleet of the U.S. Navy. And he took that ship from worst to first in a year. Now, it wasn't just him. It was the condition of empowerment that he created on board. Mm. Now, he wanted to create a quick win. And the quick win was getting a strong evaluation from an auditor and an evaluator. And so the issue with being evaluated is you never know when you're being evaluated because mm. a random guest will come on board the ship as if they're a mystery shopper. Yep. And they happen to be the evaluator. And so Marquet made a very simple rule. Anytime there's a guest on board, regardless of who they are, if you see someone who isn't part of our 150-person crew, you must stop them in their tracks, make eye contact, shake their hand, mm -hmm. tell them your name, what you do on board, and say, welcome aboard the Santa Fe. Mm. That's the rule. Yep. Now... What he was trying to do was have a shift in mindset of, we're proud to be on board this ship. I can't be like, Colin, please display more pride on this podcast. Like, I, it's not a command. Yeah. But he gave them a simple set of actions to do, which manufactured a result that the evaluator would say, wow, everyone's really proud to be on board. Mm. Now, all the crew reads the evaluation that they receive, and the evaluator writes, it was really refreshing to see so so many people proud to be on board the USS Santa Fe and then they go oh yeah I guess we are proud yeah. right so he actually created a system mm -hmm. and a set of actions that that manufactured a feeling of pride now the now the last piece is systems it's all three of these gears because you can put a good person or a good team in a bad system or environment and they're capable of awful behaviors right like, we care about collaboration, and all of our salespeople are 100% commission-based. It's like, uh, no. how's that going to work, yeah. you know? And so we must be aware of the systems and the culture because that's where our policies <laughs> live and die in our behavior. Yeah. And so, you know, quick little example of this is I worked with a really wonderful purpose-based organization, about 1,500 people manufacturing. They make unmanned drones. Mm. Really cool company. They had a purpose around literally changing the course. I think their, their purpose, they articulated as to pioneer and innovate so that we change the course of history. Mm. And they literally do change the course of history. Their technology, their products have literally saved the lives of thousands and thousands of people and changed the course of history. Fact. Now, they had an opportunity to live their purpose from the inside out. There was someone uh, who they wanted to give a promotion to who mm -hmm. deserved it and earned it. But the promotion would have them switch payroll systems and they'd go from being a salaried employee to actually an hourly employee. Mm -hmm. Net net, it was a way better opportunity. But because of the system in place, this person would have to have a two week gap in pay, which they couldn't afford because mortgage, groceries, rent, whatever it might be. Yeah. And so they said, I really want to take the promotion, but I can't afford to have two weeks without pay. Can I have an advance? Can we solve this? And made it all the way up to the SVP of, of HR who said, no, we won't break protocol. That is a wonderful example of not living your purpose. Oh, wow. An intervention happened. Yep. Uh, CEO went to SVP HR saying, what's the deal? Yep. 
SVPHR said, can't do it. Yeah. And that was the last conversation that the SVPHR had with the CEO because <laughs> they were done. It's Out. like, come yeah. on, come yeah. on. We have to, right? We don't trust people to follow the rules. We trust people to know when to break them. And so that's an example of how systems, no, no matter how sharp your mind is, no matter how transformed and inspired you are, no matter how disciplined you are in behaving in line with the values, with a broken system, broken process, or broken environment or, or culture, you're doomed. Yeah. Uh, you see, I, what I love is the sophistication of that, because we do a lot of work in the luxury uh, hotel sector. And it's this tension because your greeting piece from Marquette's book, who I love is Leadership is Language as well, which is a brilliant book. Love to reading that. There's this piece about we used to use actors to allow the service staff to practice greeting people in the corridor, but they provided tensions. So they they talked about family, but not over familiar, and they used that tension to say, so when you greet a guest in the corridor, how can you do the family but not over familiar? And they had many different ways. So it's empowering to say, here's your ritual, which is greet, shake hands, and pride. But then you're building a set of choices for people. And going back to your SVP of HR, the choices built into that system will allow him, her to go, yeah, we can break that. Yeah, we can change that. So it is, it's, I love that example going to HR because it's the same in service. How many times we had bad service when somebody goes, no, can't do that. You know, and you're like, it's a fiver. It's, you know, five pounds in our terms. Why can't you do that? I just can't. Yeah, love that. So let's link that back to the speak up culture, <laughs> because there's a leadership element to this, but then there's how do you recruit the right people to, to come in? I love your views in this, because there's, we almost talk about leadership as sorting what you have, whereas actually that one of the biggest things we can do is influence by recruiting the right people to the right roles in there. What's your views on that? Yeah, I think absolutely. It's a couple of factors, because... 10 times out of 10, if you put a cucumber in pickle brine, that shit's going to turn into a pickle. <laughs> and there are pickles yeah. that are crispy and delicious and are sent from heaven. And there are pickles that you take a bite of and you're like, that pickle should never have been made ever. And so by all means, I'm a fan of recruiting and selecting and promoting with intent and using tools. And I have some great sort of ideas there, largely influenced by my colleague and friend, Rich Devinney. But I do think we can't ignore that, that the pickle brine matters. Because again, Simon Sinek tells a beautiful story of this in, in, the, in the Infinite Game mm. with the story of Noah, who's a barista who works at the Four Seasons, if you're familiar with, with, yeah, with, with yeah. this one. And that sort of the the gist of the story is Simon interacts with this young, charming, funny, wonderful barista, and they get to talking. Turns out this barista works down the street in the same job at a different company. Mm. And at the other hotel chain, the other company, he keeps his head low because the only time he's noticed is when he's in trouble. And at Four Seasons... He's constantly supported by managers. They know his name. They ask how he's doing, if there's anything he needs to be more successful. And so environment matters. We cannot ignore that. You know, we can recruit someone that society has given up upon, mm. put them in a position to succeed in an environment to succeed. They're capable of doing amazing, wonderful things. That said, Rich Devinney has written this, this book, which I love. 
and I do a lot of work with Rich on this. It's called The Attributes. So we all mm-hmm. know the cliche, don't hire for skill, hire for culture fit or culture add. Cool, how do you actually do that? Mm-hmm. Because we've all heard of and experienced you know, the, the quote-unquote dream team where you hire mm-hmm. the best accountant, the best graphic designer, the best marketer, the best product development, the best, the best, the best, the best, and then all of a sudden, once there's some turmoil or once there's some challenge, uncertainty, stress, or fear, everyone looks out for, for numero uno and the team implodes. Mm-hmm. And so it's not necessarily about hiring the dream team. It's about hiring a resilient, adaptable team that gels and comes together and actually is greater than the sum of their parts, right? Mm. Um, a team is about how people interact. Rich has written this book, which creates a differentiation between skills and attributes. Mm. So skills we aren't born with. Mm-hmm. We aren't born with the ability to talk, walk, type on a keyboard, uh, ride a bike. Mm-hmm. We learn these skills um, and we use them as, as as we need to. They're far easier to see. It's a lot easier to test, measure, and assess skills over attributes. Attributes are more uh, elemental. They are inherent to our nature, right? We were talking mm-hmm. before that before we, we, we hopped on, Colin, that I have two young kids, a six-year-old and a three-year-old, and I've already noticed differences mm-hmm. in the makeup of my children, my my son is very aware of his s- surroundings. If there's a, a kitchen door or drawer open, he closes it. Mm. Whereas my my daughter yeah. is superfluous to 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 mess. <laughs> she doesn't clean up. She's she the one leaving care. them open. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And here's the thing: it doesn't make her better or worse. It just is. It's like judging her eye color or her hair color. It's just how she's wired. You know, we notice in in our children varying levels of resilience, adaptability, situational awareness, you know, Mm -hmm. attributes are more inherent. They tell us how we will show up in certain scenarios. So whereas riding a bike is a skill, when we fall off bike and scrape our knee, our attributes are now showing. Mm -hmm. Do we have the grit to keep going? Do we quit and give up? Whatever it might be. And so it behooves us to look at what are the attributes that make people successful in this organization? What are the attributes that make people successful in this particular team role, right? So a little fun example of this, because Rich first came to this in the in the U.S. Navy SEALs. He wanted to understand. So he Rich was in charge of selection and promotion and training and development for a specialized Navy SEAL unit, a specialized Navy SEAL team. The attrition rate for all SEALs, anyone who wants to try out and become a SEAL, attrition rate is 90%. But to become on, uh, accepted onto this specialized team, the attrition rate was still 50%. Now, all the people who were applying Mm. to get on this team were already SEALs. They already made it through Hmm. BUDS. They already made it through basic underwater demolition SEAL training. I think it's a nine-month process. They already showed that they had what it took to be a SEAL, and yet 50% of them still weren't making it the cut to get onto this specialized team. Mm. And Rich said, I need a better answer than just, I don't know, you don't got it, or you just don't have the intangibles. He needed to make the intangibles tangible. Mm. 
And so here's a fun little little example of this. There's a story, you know, Rich went to Navy SEAL training in 1996. So this happened before Rich's time. But there's this fable that's apparently true of one of the things that you do in, in SEAL training uh, is you dive into the pool. Mm-hmm. It's a 25-meter pool one way. You're to swim underwater, touch the other end, stay underwater, come back. And it's a, it's a swimming test. It's a, it's a complete skill test. Mm. There are some attributes of do you hesitate, you know, how do you perform, whatever it might be. And there's this one seal in training who hops into the pool, sinks to the bottom like a rock, walks across the bottom of the pool, touches the other end, turns around and walks back. <laughs> now, everyone's watching being like, what the heck is this kid doing? Is he yeah. an idiot? Like, what's what's going on? What's he pulling? Yeah. Comes out the other end, nearly drowning, is yanked out. And the, the, the officer in charge says, what are you doing? And he says, sir, I don't know how to swim. And he goes, oh, <laughs> we can teach you how to swim. They wonderfully displayed that they had the attributes. If this kid who didn't know how to swim is willing to just dive in, in into the pool, we're good. We can teach you how to how to swim. Good. Now, I wouldn't recommend hiring a CFO who doesn't know how to read a balance sheet, but I think we can agree yeah. that you don't need to be the best at reading balance sheets to be a very effective CFO. Yeah. And so when it comes to recruitment and getting the seemingly right people on the bus, I do believe Mm. that the conditions of the bus have more to do with how people behave in the bus. But Mm. there are people who are more naturally suited to thrive in certain cultures than others. Mm. That's why someone will, will say, I'm moving from Idaho and I'm going to San Francisco, or I'm moving to London or Paris, because you try to find, and there's neighborhoods within all of those yeah. cities as well. You're trying to find a subculture in which you fit most. Just like, especially in large organizations, you might fit great under one team or department or boss and not under the other. Mm. And it's not right or wrong. It just is. So that's a very long answer, Colin, to yes, I I do think recruitment matters. I think we need to be aware of attributes and then design interview experiences that Mm. throw some stress and certainty and challenge at people. I'm a big believer in this, right? Like you could, you could say to, to a salesperson, you have a weekend to prepare a presentation, Salas's pen, mm-hmm. and you have every right to evaluate that person on their performance of selling the pen. And you go, great. Now you have two minutes to prepare and no uh, audio visual. You will now be selling us this lip balm. Mm. And now you have to divorce yourself from their performance and see how they respond. Do they make jokes? Do they play yeah. victim? And now you're, you're evaluating the response to change, stress, uncertainty, and you divorce yourself mm. from their performance and you study their behavior and see if their behavior matches how we want people to show up in stress, uncertainty, and challenge. See, what I love is all these analogies because the, the SEALs analogy and big fan, Jocko Willick, and other books in there that you can get. But it also just goes back to the sports analogy and reading a couple of books. One is Legacy, which is about the All Blacks. And it mentions you, said sweeping the sheds, you know, that's... Um, wrong context. And, and wrong, so, wrong, wrong, yeah, wrong context, yeah. but yeah, the same name. But, <laughs> yeah, um, but there is that principle about there's some rituals and other things that people need to be seen to be doing. Yeah, part of it. But there's also this perform under pressure piece, which is stress testing people under pressure. 
And it's the value of difference. The key thing I think for leaders nowadays is very difficult to get it all right. So you want to recruit, you want to recruit the right attributes. And it's about how you get the right people into the room for the right pieces and also the different voices. And I'm, you know, I struggle with it, my own echo chamber. How do I break that? And there's also the neurodiversity piece now, which we're starting to realize that neurodiverse and people on the spectrum operate in different ways. So how do you promote people who are brilliant, but don't act as, you know, act as one of these people you don't want to get rid of in the short space of time. So it's that leadership challenge on the, the speak up culture let alone how you deal with all of those things is a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. And when you have a speak up culture and a safe space, people are allowed to speak of both with vulnerability, their strengths and their limitations. You know, I won't mm. thrive in this scenario. I will thrive in that scenario. And in many respects, flexible work and working from home has been a godsend for so many people, especially yeah. those with neurodivergence and on, on, on the spectrum. It's been wonderful. Mm. Yeah. No, no, no. It was just, it was interesting because I had a, a, a lady who came to work for us and uh, her husband and son were at Asperger's. And she said, one of the things I don't like about your work is it's all based on emotional intelligence. And her whole thing was that, you know, on the spectrum, diverse uh, neurodiverse behavior, there's a, there's a tendency not to recognize emotional intelligence, but they recognize practices, rituals, habits that make a better world around them. So it's interesting. So it's just another thought was coming to my head yeah, as you were talking. Yeah. And I, I just read an article this morning around the importance of synthesizers, mm. especially in our remote work. And this is, this is brand new for me. So I'm just learning about this. It's harder to form, not impossible, but harder to form new relationships when we work remotely. It can be harder to collaborate and come up with, with new ideas. And I'm thinking, especially of some of those people who might be on the autism spectrum and who struggle with emotional intelligence or social or emotional cues, mm. having synthesizers to help onboard and navigate and advocate for people, not just on the spectrum, all sides of the spectrum from neurodivergent to neurotypical, especially in these, in this remote work, but all work, you know, having people whose sole function it is to help people onboard, situate, thrive, connect, I think is something that we should see and could see more of more in our organizations, especially with remote and hybrid work, you know, like people's jobs to just be nodes, I think is really interesting. Mm -hmm. It's, it's almost the team of team concepts, you know, where you're, you're starting to link into the others and the collaboration piece. And I think this is where sometimes capabilities, you need to be more collaborative. Whereas if it's a working system, your three things you mentioned before in terms of you know, the systems and other pieces that you bring in, mindset, actions, and systems. I, I could go on talking all day, and, and we need to do this again. Once the book is complete and out there, I'd love to have you back on, sir. And uh, I'd love that. And do this. But um, I, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. We could squirrel off all day on these topics. Um, if people want to find you, Shed, where would they find you? Yeah. As of now, I'm the only Stephen Shedletsky in the entire human species, I believe. So if you Google my name, you will find me. I'm most active on LinkedIn. You can also find me on shedinspires.com. And next time I'm back, I know we were going to speak more about our book writing process and all that fun stuff. So happy to yeah. spill the beans and share more about what's worked for me and has not 
because uh, my productivity style, as we, we referenced when we on, is more rebellious, which is you can't make me do it and neither can I, uh, <laughs> which is really hard, especially when it comes to writing a book. So I yeah. I feel very lucky to have an amazing team who's supporting me to both get it done and have it be as quality as we can make it. I associate with that. Well, I look forward to when is actually the publication date, do you know? Uh, exact date we don't know yet, but the target is fall of 2023. So we're just about finishing up the manuscript by this fall 2022, and then it mm. goes into the process and out the other end should be fall 2023. Lovely. I always remember that point where I asked, so it takes a year to launch a book? Like, oh, it takes longer than that, yeah. Yeah. And actually, even just the launch is just the launch. It's the bit that goes beyond it. So it's been a delight, Chad. Thank you for your time. And uh, I look forward to welcoming you back close to the time where the book is coming out and we can talk the process. Yeah. Wonderful. I can wait. I, I hate it when people say I can't wait. I can wait, yes. but I'm looking forward to it, Colin. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Excellent, sir. Cool. Thank you for your time. Likewise. So that was Shed. Amazing conversation. Uh, again, I could talk with Shed for a long, long while. And just what I find interesting when you talk to somebody, firstly, who's so well read, uh, he's done the work, he's done the practice leadership, is that you start to test your own ideas and leadership, your own thinking, and you start to test some of the challenges you've got, like recruitment I threw in today, because that's one of the things we struggle with in our work and within our business. So it's fascinating to get different views and thoughts. What I, I love is the, the background of Simon Sinek because you know, his TED Talk was a massive impact on me. But I love the way he's going now, Shed's going, in terms of the psychological safety, moving into speak up culture because, as he says, it's still going to be around for ages. And how do, how do we bring that to an easier format and, uh, and a way of operating for leaders? So fascinating conversation. Anyway, I look forward to welcoming you back on another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast soon. <laughs>